This is The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, The Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. The November 6th general election is over. The votes have been counted. At least they have, I think, in almost every instance for every race here in Michigan. Nationally, there are a few races still somewhat undecided, uh, and there may be some recounts. Uh, Let me just go down the list just to review things, uh, to set up our program. We're going to have a couple of guests to talk about it. Uh, Nationally, uh, you know, it wasn't really a blue wave election. It was a blue ripple, I'd say, um, a criterion that they often use at the national level, which many people don't know about, is how many state legislative seats flip from one party to the other in a general election nationally. All 50 states, you take all the state legislatures, the houses and the senates and all these states, and how many seats flip? Well, they generally have this criteria, why they've arrived at this particular figure, I'm not sure, except it's probably an average over time of something like, you know, 470, 480 seats flipping. Now that sounds like a lot, but remember, we're talking about 50 states, two chambers, uh, legislature in each state, except for Nebraska, which has a unicameral. So there are a lot of seats. I mean, even a state like New Hampshire, which is a very small state, has a huge, um, House of Delegates or State Assembly or whatever they call it, the House of Representatives here in Michigan uh, would be the analogous body. And uh, they've got hundreds of people in that house alone. So this year, uh, there were over 300 seats that flipped, uh, something like, you know, 360, 370. But since a blue wave would be defined as, let's say, 470 seats flipping, uh, didn't quite reach that level. And of course, I think by now people know that the Republicans actually picked up seats in the Senate, or at least they picked up one seat in the U.S. Senate and expanded their majority from a very tenuous 51-49 to at least 52-48, pending the results in a couple of states, Florida and Arizona. If the Republicans win Florida and Arizona, they will have a 54-46 edge by my count. Uh, If they split those two states, it'll be 53-47. And if the Democrats win both states in Arizona uh, with uh, Kirsten Sinema over uh, Martha McSally, the Republican, and if uh, Bill Nelson, the incumbent Democratic senator in Florida, withstands the challenge from Rick Scott, uh, the Republican governor of Florida running against Nelson, uh, who has been, by the way, declared the winner at this point. Uh, if Nelson emerges either in a recount or in some other way as the winner in cinema in Arizona, um, it would be, uh, only 52 48. But if both Scott and, uh, Martha McSally win, it'll be 54 46. When I say 46, Technically, it's uh, 44 Democrats and two independents, but the two independents are Bernie Sanders of Vermont and Angus King of Maine, and they caucus with the Democrats. So effectively, they're a Democrat. Uh, U.S. House, um, the Democrats did pick up enough seats to 
reassert control for the first time in eight years of the U.S. House. Uh, the question is, how many seats did they really gain? They needed to gain 23 seats, the Democrats did, to get the majority. It looks like they're probably going to get when all the votes are counted. And there are still a bunch of races out there spread around the country that are being tabulated. and There may be recounts, but it looks like they may pick up maybe around 35 seats, give or take one or two. So if that's the case, they needed 23, they got 35, uh, they should control the House. Um, I would say it's going to be something like 240 to 195 seats over the next two years. Remember, there are 435 seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. So 240, 195 would be 435, but you know, that may not be exact. It may be a few more seats for the Democrats, a few less for the Republicans or vice versa. Now here in Michigan, you can make a case. We really did have a blue wave in Michigan. Uh, the results were happier, better for the Democrats in Michigan than they were nationally. Uh, Gretchen Whitmer, the Democratic nominee was elected governor, 53 to 44%. That's about a 9% edge. Debbie Stabenow, the incumbent uh, Democratic U.S. Senator, uh, won her race against the challenge of Republican John James by a fairly close 52 to 46. That's the best any Republican has done against Debbie Stabenow uh, since she was first elected in 2000. Uh, U.S. Representative, very interesting. Republicans went into Election Day with a nine to five edge in the 14 member congressional delegation. And the Democrats flipped two seats. They won two seats they didn't have in the 8th and the 11th districts. Those are down in Oakland County. 11th district uh, actually includes a portion of Western Wayne County as well. The Democrats, uh, Alyssa Slotkin in the 8th, knocked off incumbent Republican Mike Bishop. And in the 11th, um, Haley Stevens, a Democrat, won the open seat against uh, Lena Epstein, the Republican nominee. That's for the seat of the retiring David Trott, a uh, Republican who had represented the district for the last two cycles. So now the delegation is split for the first time, 7-7, seven, seven, seven Republicans, seven Democrats. State Senate, um, the Republicans went into the election ahead 27 to 11. They lost five seats, but they uh, still emerged with a 22 to 16 majority in the state Senate. They had such a uh, overwhelming majority margin going into the election, they could afford to lose five, and they're still going to control 22 16. And by the way, that's about the margin by which the Republicans have controlled the Senate for most of the last two decades before the last eight years. The last eight years were really an anomaly uh, where the Republicans had these huge margins, 26 to 12 and 27 to 11. Before that, for most of the 90s and most of the 21st century, it was around 21-17, 22-16, 23-15. And over in the State House of Representatives, the Democrats also picked up five seats, but they went into the election down uh, 63-47. So you do the math, and the Republicans have ended up with 58 seats in the House and the Democrats 52. The Democrats actually won six seats, but the Republicans actually pulled a surprise in the 
10th House District, way up in the Western UP, they won a race that nobody expected them to. So they knocked off, uh, not a Democrat, but they picked up a seat that had been represented by a Democrat for six years. So six minus one is five. The net gain for the Democrats is five, and it's now a 58-52 House, meaning uh, we got split government here in Michigan. We've got a Democratic governor. We got a Republican-controlled legislature. Uh, Supreme Court. Now, this is really important. As you probably know, we nominate our candidates for the uh, Supreme Court at party conventions, and then they miraculously run as nonpartisans. The Republicans went into the race on November 6th ahead 5-2, to two, and they lost one of their two incumbent justices. Uh, and so the Democrats narrowed the margin to 4-3, which is significant. Uh, the turnout in this race was huge. 4.3 million. It's an all-time record turnout for a non-presidential year. And it's the most uh, percentage, highest percentage since 1962. That was uh, 56 years ago. So the turnout was 52%. That is huge for a non-presidential year. Uh, by the way, the Democrats swept all the education boards, too. Uh, two apiece, University of Michigan, MSU, Wayne State, and the State Board of Education. They won them all, eight of them, two on each board. Republicans got shut out. So Democrats now nominate those boards uh, by 5-3 margins, University of Michigan and Wayne State, and by, uh, excuse me, 6-2, 7 Excuse me, 7 1 by University of Michigan and Wayne State, and 5 3 at Michigan State and State Board of Education. We'll be back in a minute with our first guest. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back, and we've got our first guest, and he's no stranger because he's been on this program before several times. Uh, Always a great guy to talk to Mark Grebner with practical political consulting for years, Michigan's leading little political list broker. And, uh, he's now become a pollster. I mean, I'm amazed Uh you're really churning the stuff out here, Mark. Uh, welcome cool. to, uh, the political insider. Thanks for having me back on. And, uh, look, I just want to start with a very simple question. And that is, why did the Democrats seem to do so much better here in Michigan than they did nationally? Um, I think what happened was we dodged a bunch of bullets. Uh, uh, overall, the uh, Democratic percentage of the two-party vote was only 53% in Michigan. I expect it to be a 55 or higher. So, you know, with only 53, things might have broken down. Um, but I think that that uh, no, nothing went wrong where it mattered. The governor's race, the two congressional seats, uh, the Supreme Court was just a wonderful surprise. Uh, the ballot proposals, uh, you know, something could easily have broken down with only a 53-47 baseline advantage, but nothing did. So uh, maybe it was just dumb luck. Well, how... Do you look at the election overall? What jumps out on at you uh, other than what you just said? Well, uh, you shouldn't have six major 
uh, themes in an election, but I've come up with six different things that, that went on all at the same time that, that sort of explain what happened. And, and I wish there were only one or two. That would just be better. But, but, I, but let me go through them real quick. In, in the first place, I'm talking really about how Michigan is changing and how this election was different than the past and probably what we're going to be seeing develop into the future. So the first is that the Democrats are getting hammered in rural areas and Republicans are getting hammered in places that have sidewalks and municipal governments and, you know, city water and so forth. And, and that's, more than we've seen in the past, and it's not a reflection of something else. It's not a reflection of income or age or anything. But but Democrats are getting wiped out in the Upper Peninsula and in the counties with low populations. And the Republicans, weirdly enough, are getting wiped out even in the very highest income, wealthiest areas, even in very conservative parts of the state. We're starting to see Republican retreats. So... So that's the first thing I saw, and that's maybe been developing over time, but it's become a real trend by itself. The second thing is that the Democrats are, are clearly strengthening their hold on higher education people. Um, you know, it's been, it's been a trend developing over time, but it's become undeniable now. And at the same time, we're losing people, especially, I'm talking about whites, white voters with low education and relatively low incomes are becoming pretty much bedrock Republicans in most cases. And, and so we're seeing a shift that the Democrats are doing so much better in Oakland County, which is relatively high income, a lot of it. And we're doing noticeably worse in places like Downriver Wayne, uh, while we're doing better in Western Wayne, you know, Canton Township, Plymouth North, but we're doing so much better. So, so that's a second trend. A, a third one is it's very clear we're seeing an age twist where younger people are becoming uh, really two to one or more Democratic. I'm talking about people under the age of 30. And older voters are becoming pretty united, uh, pretty solid Republican on the average. I mean, obviously, age is not a Age doesn't tell you as much, for example, as race does about a person's vote. But, but we've seen some trend like that over the past few elections, but now we're really seeing an intensification. Um, so that's, that's three uh, major things. Now, a fourth one, I gotta, there just shouldn't be so many themes, <laughs> is that Democrats are doing so much better among women you know, the whole Me Too thing, and Republicans are holding on to their their uh, position roughly among white men. Is it about, is it about low 50, education? Is it about 50-50 male, but then uh, what, maybe 10, 12, 15-point gap with women? Yeah, uh, something pretty much like that. Um, and especially if you break out white men and white men over the age of 50, that's become really the the citadel for Republicans. I mean, that's like their last uh, uh, stronghold. Um, and, and so you put all these together, 
and and what we're seeing is that the the political map is shifting as as we watch and I, and I don't think that any of these things are going to uh, change much. I mean, they're going to, if anything, intensify. They're not going to, it's not like a high point is going to recede. And so Michigan's political map is being redrawn as the Democrats no longer are getting hammered in places that, you know, as a Democrat, I just look at Livingston County and shudder, but we didn't do that badly in Livingston. I mean, we didn't win anything, but, but we didn't, it wasn't that we had huge losses there. Ottawa County, for God's sakes, the most Republican place on earth, is no longer the most Republican county in the state by quite a bit. Ottawa County, which was 75 and more percent Republican 20 years ago, and now it's just a moderately Republican county. The Democrats are starting to carry Kent County routinely. What a bizarre thing. I mean, who would have ever thought that 20 years ago? Right. That, that it wouldn't be a big deal that Whitmer carries Kent County. Um, at the same time, uh, you know, these little rural counties that used to be Democratic or, or, or about 50-50 are now completely off the table for us. Like the Lake, that Lake County? carry the Upper Peninsula. Go yeah, ahead. Lake County. That would be an example also, wouldn't sure. it? Yeah. Well, of course, Lake is, is uh, yes, I mean, Lake has a, has a very complicated history. Yeah, so it's, it's African-American, I, heavy, yeah, African-American. I'm just saying it's a, it's a rural outstate county that you, you always thought was an island of Democrats in a sea of Republicans. And now, you know, I think Trump carried it, and I think, you know, Republicans kind of carried it this year. Didn't Shooty carry it? Sure. But places like, uh, well, the Upper Peninsula is a good example. All yes. those counties up there. Right. You know, you always thought of that as being a Democratic uh, uh, stronghold. Right. Particularly the Western the UP. Democrats can't carry it except in the college town. Right. Marquette is about the only place left they can really count on. Yeah, I, I suppose that Houghton, uh, the city of Houghton. Well, and, and in fact, probably the individual cities because of what I said before about, you know, urbanism. They're not very urban, but they're urban enough that they probably still develop Democratic majorities. Right. Okay, we're going to have to take a short break, but I think you've gone through four of your six themes. Um, and uh, we'll come back with Mark Grebner and talk about the fifth and sixth. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We're back with Mark Grebner of Practical Political Consulting, and he's come up with about six different, you might call them themes, uh, that he wanted to emphasize about the November 6th general election. He's gone through, I think, four. Uh, what about the fifth and sixth? Uh, what about turnout, Mark? Well, it's pretty clear that that as you add more voters to the electorate, you're adding largely, not entirely, but largely Democratic uh, uh, adherents, and and so the the, pop, the turnout being so high, up up to 4.3 million, uh, where we 
in a typical gubernatorial year, we see three or 3.2 million. The extra million people made it so that the Democrats, this is as good a year as they're going to have in a gubernatorial election. And and even so, it, the baseline was only 53, and they fell short in both the Senate and the, and the House, you know, of what they were hoping for. Um, the, the, the other theme that I'd, I'd forgotten was that in college towns, essentially there's been a wipeout of, of Republicans. Uh, you saw that in Kalamazoo. You've seen that now in, in Washtenaw, which, which accidentally knocked off the last Republican on the County Board of Commissioners. Wow. I mean, without anybody intending it. He just, you know, the Republican just slipped beneath the waves and disappeared. And in Ingham, I mean, we, we've started, Ingham County is now more than two-to-one Democratic. I mean, it's it's reached past the point that we're a Democratic-leaning county or a Democratic county. We are now a place that the Democrats run up margins to cover what they lose elsewhere. Um, so college towns, we even see that in Isabella. Uh, it's just hard to be a Republican within five miles of a university campus. Right. Uh, by the way, I noticed... Uh kind of curious, um, that Gretchen Whitmer not only carried Ingham County, her home County, she's from East Lansing, but she actually carried Clinton and Eaton counties because sure. of the spillover population from the city of Lansing into Delta township in particular in Eaton County, and then into DeWitt and Bath townships in Southern Clinton County. And so all three of those counties, uh, in the so-called capital bubble, they all went democratic. Right. I, I see that, especially Clinton, as more being a spill-off from MSU. Um, um, that that you just, that people that near a university just, you just don't have much Republican residual strength. I mean, the Republicans move further away. They just don't feel comfortable that close to a college campus or something. Right. Let me ask about straight-ticket voting, because as we've talked about numerous times leading up to the election, uh, this is going to be the only time in our lifetime, probably that we yeah. did not have straight ticket voting. I mean, we've always had it, uh, because I think it's been in effect since 1891 in the 19th century. And now with the passage of proposal three, uh, it's going to start up again in 2020, but this year it was a one-off. You didn't have straight ticket voting. Do you think based on what you've seen, it made any difference at all? It probably did in some tiny way in some specific race. But it, this, of all years not to have it, this was the year that it would matter least because everybody was so bitterly partisan that there were very few ticket splitters anyway. Normally we see 20 or 25 percent of the voters split their tickets. This year it's more like 10 or 15 percent. And so. You know, because people are so divided that the Democrats and the Republicans both mark their ballots all the way down to the bottom of the ticket, voting for all the candidates they've never heard of. So that you didn't really need a straight ticket option to, to do that. But the biggest impact of a straight ticket is to allow people to vote for, for candidates on their own ticket that they've never heard of or for whom they feel disdain. And so it's a way to cover... Uh, you know, uh, weak spots in your ticket because you don't make people actually mark the spot. So maybe Swedan or however you pronounce her name in House District 39 
maybe she would have been salvaged, even though she's been charged with embezzlement, if the voters didn't have to actually vote for her. As it was, she came reasonably close to being elected anyway, right? Yeah, she got about 42%. I'm sorry? Yeah, I say she got about 42% anyway. Right, and this is a woman who has been charged by the Democrats right. with embezzlement. Yeah, I mean, this this is not a partisan thing. No. So you can't really have a much more disgraceful situation than to be charged by the Democratic county treasurer with embezzlement and <laughs> prosecuted by the Democratic prosecutor, and yet she got 42%. Now, if you had allowed the Democrats to vote for her by just po- you know, circling the uh, the dem- the or filling in the oval yeah. At the top, right? Maybe that would have been enough to to keep even her. Right? So maybe there's a possible example. Right. What about the three ballot proposals? One, two, and three. Well, I think they're all sort of different, but of course they're all liberal uh, proposals. One, uh, you know, it only finally passed with what fifty six or fifty seven percent of the vote. So. Uh, having the large turnout may have been to its advantage. It might have struggled if the turnout had been, say, 3 million or 2.8 million, because the population voting would have been older on the average uh, and, and less liberal. So, so maybe that's a case where uh, the larger number of young people turning out uh, you know, may have carried across lines, or maybe it just would have been at 52% instead of 56 uh, the other two proposals are, are pretty much an indication of support for political liberalism, I guess, in the, in the state. I mean, divorce from party, you know, when the voters are asked, reforming gerrymandering and, and really substantially increasing uh, uh, voter access to the ballot, uh, you know, the voters pretty overwhelmingly decided in favor I suppose with Proposal 3, there was kind of an advertisement in a lot of polling places that people standing in line had a chance to really think about whether they were in favor of no reason absentee voting and, and uh, uh, allowing a straight ticket option. As many people were standing there for 15 minutes or half an hour uh, thinking about, you know, ways to speed up the line, then they, when they finally get in to see the ballot, it probably rang a little truer for some of them. Um, but I, I think that all three of those proposals were opposed sort of by the Republican establishment, and it was just probably another indication that they weren't having a good day. Right. Uh, what else, anything else pop out at you from the election uh, yesterday? Or I should well, say Tuesday, I'm sorry, Tuesday. I think that we we ought to think about how this how especially proposal three is going to change the world going forward. We're going to find in high turnout elections that the turnout is even larger because there won't be any barrier to people who get mobilized late. In other words, in an election like this, or or as I expect twenty twenty, it's going to have a very large turnout. Well, voters who move near the day of the election normally just get lost in Michigan. But they won't be. College kids who just can't quite get it together to request an absentee ballot and return it, that won't be a barrier because no matter where you are in Michigan on Election Day, you can just get over to Township or City Hall starting the next election, request a ballot and vote. 
So we're going to see uh, it won't affect small turnout elections because because the reason that people fail to vote in those is lack of interest or knowledge. But access to the ballot is going to be substantially improved by no reason absentee voting, election day voting, automatic registration, and so on. So we're probably going to see even larger turnouts like in the 2020 general election, and maybe the, the presidential primary, which I don't think people begin to focus on, but is only, what, 14 months away? <laughs> From the Right, amazingly enough. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know what? We could just keep talking uh, and talking. I remember in an earlier program you mentioned uh, absentee voting may go up in the you know, 43 45% range from what it is now, 28% with the passage of Proposal 3. But uh, we don't have time to talk about that, but we want to thank Mark Grebner of Practical Political Consulting, who's given us some really keen insight into what happened on Tuesday. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you for having me. This is MTN. And you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We're back for our last segment, and we've got a special guest, Jamie Rowe, partner with Grand River Strategies, which is a consulting, a political consulting firm um, headquartered in, uh, Jamie, what is it, Lansing only? you got another office down in southeast Michigan? Well, we live, uh, or we have an office in Lansing. Uh, I also, I live in Macomb Township. I uh, work out of here most of the time, and my uh, partner is Stu Sandler, and he lives in Ann Arbor, but he spends a good deal of time in Lansing as well. So we're we're sort of all over the all over the place. Okay, this year, what what's the list of clients you had, either in the primary or the general election? Just give us a sample, can you? Well, yeah, we are. Um, General consultant for uh, Congressman Paul Mitchell uh, had ran his uh, uh, successful race uh, two years ago. Uh, we did it again this year. Uh, we, we did the race for Mike Bishop. We did uh, a super PAC for Bill Schuette in the primary and uh, worked uh, uh, directly on the campaign on some issues in the fall. Uh, we did some work uh, with a group that was supporting Tom Leonard. We did... Um, uh, we do some work with the Michigan uh, Chamber of Commerce uh, uh, that, that really was focused on some of the legislative races. Um, and that's, uh, that was the bulk of it this year. Uh, two years ago, we did the uh, campaigns for David Viviano and uh, 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 Joan Larson, uh, hopefully our next Supreme Court justice. Uh, and uh, we did Candace Miller's successful campaign over uh, Tony Morocco, the most expensive local race in Michigan history. And with me, prior to uh, starting this firm with Stu in 2015, I spent uh, 20 years with Candace Miller. I was her chief of staff in Washington. Uh, I ran her campaign for first campaign for uh, uh, Congress. I ran her re-election campaign for Secretary of State back in 1998 and uh, started off working with the Michigan Republican Party back in 1990 uh, on the Angler campaign. Pretty impressive list. And uh, let me ask you, uh, this is kind of a segue, uh, um, Candace Miller, honestly, in my opinion, would have been by far the best person this year to run for either governor or U.S. Senate, uh, probably the best, uh, strongest candidate the Republicans could have fielded statewide. She was elected statewide, as you know, uh, Secretary of State twice for eight years between 1994 and 2002. What are the chances that she will ever uh, do anything more than uh, 
continue to serve as public works commissioner over in Macomb County now that she's been elected there? Yeah, I guess you never say never. And I, obviously, I've known um, Candace for you know for twenty six years, I think, um, and was very involved in basically every campaign she's ever uh, run from the statewide level uh, on. And you know, she's a, she's definitely she's a public servant, and and she likes public service a lot. And she's very good at it and, and respected by the people. Um, but you, in order to run for the job, you got to want the job, you know. And I, that was one of the reasons why she didn't run for re-election for Congress. She didn't. She no longer, you know, felt a calling to be a member of Congress. I think that she really likes the job that she's doing right now. And you know, quite frankly, as a Macomb County resident, I think she's doing a great job at it in, in a place that, you know, really needed uh, attention after uh, 24 years of Tony Morocco and, and the shenanigans that went on under him. And uh, you know, I think we saw that quickly when she, you know, first day on the job, she's uh, confronted with the sinkhole down in Fraser and has handled that beautifully. Um, I think I totally agree she would be a strong statewide candidate. But you know what? Sometimes in, in, in your life, if you, if you don't want the job, don't run for it. And, you know, if she decides that she's going to get back in, I think she would be formidable. No doubt about it. I do, too. I agree with you. Well, let me just ask you a big kind of blue sky question. Uh, looking at the election results uh, from this past Tuesday, November 6th, what takeaways uh, do you get out, out of that particular election? Well, you know, the, the, first of all, there's the strength of uh, uh, our caucus operation in the legislature that, that one, uh, preserves majorities in both houses, uh, in the face of uh, you know a, a, a pretty you know wide defeat at the at the top of the ticket, which is always difficult to overcome. Um, I think Mike Shirky and, and Lee Chatfield and, and um, others involved there, current legislative leaders, did a great job. Tom Leonard um, did a great job prepping the field and, and running really good campaigns at the um, local level. Uh, the other thing is, man, it, it, Democrats had a unified message. Uh, behind what I believe is is a big lie, this uh, uh, Republicans want to uh, uh, you know take away insurance for people with pre-existing conditions. It's just nonsense, and it's a big lie that they push not only here but they push nationally, and they put unprecedented sums of money behind it. You know, Alyssa Slotkin, we were we were working on the Mike Bishop campaign, and Alyssa Slotkin spent about and her allies spent about seventeen million dollars on that campaign. That's more than any candidate running for governor spent. All for money from outside of Michigan and all pushing this big lie. Mike Bishop's wife has a pre-existing condition. I don't think he's going to take away her insurance or try and make it less affordable. Um, and that, uh, that hurt desperately because we did not, we did not have the resources to successfully um, uh, attack that, that big lie. You know, and they use it on everybody. They use it on, on Bishop, they use it on, on Shooty, they use it on Tom Leonard, they use it on everybody under the sun. Um, down to the legislative level, they tried it. So that was difficult in overcoming, you know, it wasn't necessarily a blue wave, but it was definitely a green wave. The amount of money was just absolutely unprecedented um, that the Democrats brought to bear on this. And the, and the fact of the matter is, I think we had a leader on our side, our governor, who, you know, took the campaign off. You know, I, uh, I I came up in the Angler School, and John Angler, when I when I was involved, was the uh, unquestioned leader of the party, and he did everything in his power to help the team all the way through the finishing his term in in 2002, and 
you know, we had our governor, and we were facing this, this um, onslaught of cash from the Democrats from all over the place. And our governor ran $2.5 million in ads in July and August, patting himself on the back and not even supporting our, our Republican team. I can guarantee you this. That is money that would have been useful and helpful to have been deployed in October and November instead of July and August. And, you know, it, it's in this thing. I understand he has issues with, with Bill Schuette, and I, and I get that. But the fact of the matter is, by, by sort of harming Bill Schuette's campaign, you hurt everybody's campaign. I mean, the, what, what happens at the top of the ticket affects, you know, this. you've been around this long enough. If the top of the ticket's weak, it's going to spread down the ballot. And we had good people um, losing tough races because we did not have um, the resources at the top to commit to, to, to compete. And it's just it's a shame. Although we, you know, we won a bunch of big races. I think holding 58 seats in the House is just an incredible, impressive performance. And, and holding that um, Senate majority is uh, uh, an impressive performance. It um, also showed, and I, I mean, like I said, I live down here in Macomb County. One thing um, that I think became very clear here is, the legislative battles, I mean, we basically ended up with none down here. We were defending several sort of um, target house races last time. I mean, they thought that the uh, court Tory rocket seat was going to be a target for the state Senate, and, and we our, our candidates crushed it down here. Um, and I think that, that, you know, this is this is Trump country down here, and uh, uh, it performed very well, although the, the top of the ticket here in Macomb County was was um, surprisingly weak. We uh, the only statewide race we won here was Tom Leonard, and um, it just uh, in the in the level of turnout was uh, incredible this year. Yeah, we've only got about a minute and a half uh, left, but let me just ask you: uh, Do you think the, the only way that Rick Snyder might have helped the party uh, if he just couldn't bring himself to endorse Bill Schuette would have been? fundraising because you got to remember Rick Snyder himself uh is not necessarily a popular governor. I mean, there have been polls taken nationally and he's like fifth or sixth from the bottom out of 50 governors in popularity. His numbers are really upside down. And for him to embrace Bill Schuette, I'm not sure that would be doing Bill Schuette any favors. Well, I think the entire Brian Kelly campaign in the primary was based upon outside money raised by Rick Snyder. Um, and yeah, that would have been helpful. I mean, I, I, I firmly believe that endorsements mean very little unless they come with money. Uh, I don't think popularity is transferable and only unpopularity is necessarily transferable. Uh, but money and the ability to deliver your message is what's key. And that was the piece that was, that was missing for too many of our candidates who were facing an onslaught from the left. And, you know, we did nothing to, uh, nothing to defend that. But the governor's uh, statement um, afterwards congratulating Whitmer, saying that we can't go back to the lost decade uh, and uh, uh, we got to keep moving forward was pure irony. Well, it sure was, especially since Bill Schuette had been saying the same thing all fall. Uh, and everybody was saying, why do you keep uh, saying this and repeating it? It was almost as though Snyder was saying, you know what, it doesn't mean anything when he says it, but when I say it, it, it means something. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it was uh, it was an interesting day, but you know what? Republican Party's strong in this state. We're just we're going to keep swinging. Uh, congratulations to our legislative leaders and, and our great uh, members of Congress and everything who won, and uh, it's time to get back to work. 
Thank you very much, Jamie Rowe, partner in Grand River Strategies. Did a great job, great insights. Thank you, Jamie. Thanks, Bill.